I thought what we would do uh, just at the outset of chapter 14 is I'd, I'd like to walk back uh, and look at some key passages from the book of Acts so we have a clear idea of what the gift of tongues looked like in the early church. And then we'll come back to our passage in chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians. So if you can turn with me to Acts chapter 2, I want to just look at a few passages from the 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 book of Acts, and make some observations about this gift, because I think there are some misconceptions even as people read the the New Testament. I think people typically say, well, you know, the New Testament is filled with people speaking in tongues, and um, it's really not the case. Even in the book of Acts, the majority of people who come to faith in Christ do not speak in tongues. Um, There are, and I'm going to focus on four passages where we see four different groups of people who speak in tongues or apparently have some sort of visible manifestation when they receive the Holy Spirit. And we'll talk and make some observations as we go through these. The first one is Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. This is the account of the day of Pentecost after the Lord had told the disciples to remain in Jerusalem because the Spirit of God would be coming. It says in Acts chapter 2, verse 1, When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting, and there appeared to them as of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven, And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, "Why are not all these who are speaking Galilee? uh, Why are are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born?" Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and other districts of Libya around Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. So let's just make some observations. This is the first account we have of people speaking in tongues in the Scripture. It happened on the day of Pentecost. It happened at a time when those who were the disciples of Jesus had been waiting for the Holy Spirit to come. He came upon them. It was visible. There were visible tongues of fire that you could see, what appeared to be tongues of fire coming down out of heaven, uh, resting on their heads. Um, and there, it was a supernatural gift to communicate the wonders of God in known languages. We have more than 15 different nations mentioned there. We have 15 different nations mentioned there. And, of course, on the day of Pentecost was a, a, national, a, a national feast day in Israel. And so in Jerusalem, people had come from all the different countries, many of them Jewish proselytes um, who would have spoken different tongues, their mother tongues, uh, their own languages, and they hear these people proclaiming the wonders of God in their own language. So it was a known language. It was understood by them. It was a supernatural ability. 
from people who had never studied those languages, and it was evident to all something amazing is happening here. It was a confirmatory gift, a gift that was given to show people that, hey, this is a transition period um, where <laughs> we're, we're no longer the Old Testament uh, way of, of honoring Yahweh, which is to convert to Judaism uh, and follow Yahweh through the sacrificial system, everything was changing. The Messiah had come. This was the message of those early disciples. So we notice that on the day of Pentecost. Let me move to another one and we'll take some questions. Uh, Acts chapter 8, um, verses 4 through 25. Acts chapter 8, it should be noted that on the day of Pentecost, there were 3,000 people who came to faith in Christ, and we don't have any account of those people. Uh, We have account of them being baptized with water. We don't have any account of any sort of speaking in tongues or anything like that. Um, But in Acts chapter 8, we have Philip preaches Christ in Samaria. Now, if you remember that the Samaritans, uh, because... of the northern kingdom and its disobedience. Uh, They were carried off to Assyria. They carried off, the Assyrians carried off captives. This is about 722 BC, so 700 years before Christ. And they carried off captives to Assyria. What they did when they carried off those captives is they left half of the people in the nation, in the land, but they brought in people from other nations to also live in the land knowing that they would intermarry and that the, 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 the Jewish people would not be distinct from other nations. And so that's why the Jews who were in the southern kingdom, remember the southern kingdom was later taken uh, in 586 B.C. into captivity, three successive waves with, uh, uh, that's when Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego uh, uh, ended up going to ba- um, Babylon and uh, we have the, the Babylonians uh, taking them away at that time. And they removed them for 70 years but allowed them to go back. And so by the time of Christ, that southern area of Judea, Judea was uh, very, uh, very much populated by Jewish people. But they looked at those to the north of them in Samaria as a, uh, a, a mixed race they were, they were very, there was very much uh, a despising of them. They differed on their view of which mountain to worship Yahweh from. And even though they had many similarities in their faith, um, there, was a, there was just a real division between Jews and Samaritans. Well, in Acts chapter 8, Philip preaches Christ in Samaria because persecution had broken out in Jerusalem and scattered Um, the disciples and the apostles and the early believers all over. And in Acts chapter 8, beginning of verse 4, it says, Therefore those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. The crowds with one accord giving attention to what was said by Philip, they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. For in the case, many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them, shouting with a loud voice, and many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was much rejoicing in that city. Now there was a man named Simon, who formerly was practicing magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. And they all, from the smallest to the greatest, were giving attention to him, saying, this man is what is called great, called the, this man is what is called the great power of God. 
and they were giving him attention because he had for a long time astonished them with his magic arts. Verse 12 of Acts chapter 8. But when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike, Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And as he observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly amazed. Now, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John. This would have been huge news for the church in Jerusalem, that Samaritans are being saved, that the gospel is going to them and they're believing in Christ. What will this mean for the church? The church up until this point had been Jews and Jewish proselytes who were now worshiping Christ as the Messiah. Verse 15 uh, of Acts chapter 8, they sent Peter and John who came down and prayed with them that they might receive the Holy Spirit for he had not yet fallen upon any of them and they had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver and gold perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter. For your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray the Lord that if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. But Simon answered, pray to the Lord for me yourselves so that nothing of what you've said may come to me. Uh, Verse 25, so they had solemnly testified and spoken the word of the Lord Um, When they had solemnly testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they started back to Jerusalem and were preaching the gospel to to many villages of the Samaritans. So what we happen here, what we have here is we have Philip who's preaching in Samaria. Many come to faith in Christ. They haven't yet received the Holy Spirit. The leaders of the church in Jerusalem hear about it. They send uh, to them John and Peter who go there and pray for the Holy Spirit to come. The Spirit comes, and notice we don't have the mention of tongues at all in that section I read. However, because something happened visibly when they received the Holy Spirit, the Samaritans did, um, and because you have Simon, who is some sort of, you know, magician guy who comes... who at least professes to believe in Christ, but obviously has some wrong motives when he comes to see it. He saw something that was miraculous uh, at at the time that they received the Holy Spirit. Many say they were speaking in tongues. They certainly could have been speaking in tongues. It would have made sense um, because then when Peter and John returned back to Jerusalem, they could say, guess what? Samaritans have trust in Christ, they have the same spirit we do. It was manifested in the same way it was when we first uh, received the spirit. And so let's skip on and look at another group. Acts chapter 10, beginning verse 22. This is the Gentiles now. This is Cornelius, the house of Cornelius. Cornelius was a Roman. Uh, He was a soldier. He was not a proselyte. He had not been circumcised. He was an uncircumcised Gentile. He had not come to faith in in Yahweh, 
But he liked learning about Yahweh and tried to honor Yahweh and he tried to give and help out those who believed, those who were Jews. He, he thought he had shown evidence that there was a compassion in his heart. And in, in, um, in Acts chapter 10, uh, an angel appears to Cornelius and, and basically tells him, uh, you need to go send for Peter. And so he does that. And we'll pick it up in verse 22 of Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10, verse 22. They said, Cornelius, a centurion, a righteous and God-fearing man, well spoken of by the entire nation of the Jews, was divinely directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear a message from you. So he invited them in and gave them lodging. This is Peter who invited them in. And uh, they had gone to Peter just like the angel had told Cornelius to send someone to go get him. And on the next day, verse 23, on the next day, he got up and went away with them. And some of the brethren from Joppa accompanied him. On the following day, he entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for them and he called together his relatives and close friends. Uh, Peter had just seen a vision prior to this of a sheet dropping from heaven with all kinds of you know, like squirrely animals that were had scales and you know all the kind of animals that you weren't supposed to eat as a Jew. And three times the Lord said to him in a vision, go ahead, kill and eat, right? It's the hunter's favorite Bible verse. Go ahead, kill and eat. And, and uh, Peter says, no, I would never do this. And he realizes that God gave him that vision to show him that previously what was unclean, that is to go into the house of a Gentile or to fellowship with Gentiles, is now clean. Um, and um, it says in, verse, uh, in chapter 10, verse 25, when Peter entered, Cornelius met him, and he fell at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter raised him up, saying, Stand up, I too am just a man. And, and he talked with him, and he entered and found many people assembled And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. And yet God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. That is why I came without even raising any objection when I was sent for. So I asked for what reason, Cornelius said, to this hour, I was praying in my house during the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in a shining Garments, And he said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Therefore, send to Joppa and invite Simon, who is also called Peter, to come to you. He is staying at the house of Simon the Tanner by the sea. So I sent for you immediately and you have been kind enough to come. Now then, we are all here present before God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. Verse 34, opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. But in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. The word which he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know the things which took place throughout all Judea, starting with Galilee after the baptism which John proclaimed. You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power and how he went about doing good and healing him who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. We are witnesses of these things. He did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. God raised him up on the third day and granted that he become visible, not to all people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God, that is, to us who ate and drank with him, after he arose from the dead, 
and he ordered us to preach to the people and Solomon to testify that this is the one who had been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Of him all the prophets bear witness through his name. Everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. While Peter was speaking those words, the Holy Spirit fell upon those who were listening to the message. All of the circumcised believers, all of the circumcised who came with Peter were amazed because of the gift of the Holy Spirit that had been poured out on the Gentiles also, for they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. Then Peter answered, Surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did. Can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then they asked him to stay on for a few days. So what's going on here is we have the, the, the Gentiles now speaking. And somehow they're supernaturally, uh, while Peter's even preaching, it's happening uh, the, the time between uh, true belief and the coming of the Spirit for the original disciples, they had to wait a long time. For the Samaritans, it was until those original disciples came. Same thing with the Gentiles now, but we see this initial time. And what is the reason that the Gentiles were speaking in tongues? It really seems to be so that the Jews who were there actually saw and could testify that, yeah, God, the same God who gave us the Holy, His Holy Spirit has come to the Samaritans, which is hard for us to swallow, but we rejoice because He's God, right? And now to Gentiles, which seems totally foreign to the way we've grown up. We've, told to be, we've been raised to be separate from them completely, and the only way we can fellowship with them is they change and become a Jew, essentially, by becoming a proselyte. But now... We're, we're, why can't we baptize them? Why can't we worship with them? They have the same spirit. They are God's children. The tongues, was one of, the tongues were one of the manifestations that confirmed to that early church that it should be united. We saw that with uh, the, the Jews, the Samaritans, and then the Gentiles. One more group, Acts chapter 19, and then we'll pretty much cover really the four main tongue passages in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 19, verses 1 through 7. Acts chapter 19, Paul is on the scene now. He is on his missionary journeys. And in Acts chapter 19, beginning in verse 1, it says, It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. So Paul's going to Ephesus. He finds believers there. And he said to them in verse 2 of chapter 19 of Acts, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, No, we have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, Into, then, into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. So they were disciples of John the Baptist. They had been baptized by John the Baptist. John came prior to Christ's ministry, saying that I mean, it, were, it, was, it were Gentiles... Uh, Baptism was something that Gentiles did to repent and part of their ceremony of becoming a Jew. And one of the amazing things about John the Baptist is he's having Jews repenting and actually demonstrating their repentance by being baptized as a Gentile would. And this was going on, and it was, it was, uh, you know, it was, it was wildly popular, and it was something that had spread far and wide. And these are some Jews that had obviously come all the way from Ephesus, been baptized by John or by one of John's disciples, and then gone back, but never heard 
about the Messiah. John was paving the way for the Messiah, got left up there in Ephesus, and they were unaware of this. Verse 4, um, Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in him who was coming in Jesus. When they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, and when Paul laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. They were in all about 12 men. So those are the four examples we have in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2, first Jewish believers receive the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 8, first Samaritan believers receive the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 10, first Gentile believers receive the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 19, we have some Old Testament saints who had not yet heard about the New Testament Messiah, and they receive the Holy Spirit. So the norm in the book of Acts, the norm seemed to be that after these groups were reached with their first You know, the Jews were first reached, and then everyone else who came to faith in Christ also received the Holy Spirit at the moment of regeneration. This is a transitional book. It's a time, it's a, Acts is a book of the history of the church, and the church is just beginning. This is the foundation of the church, and it seems like tongues was a confirmatory gift that that showed people and demonstrated and affirmed that this really was the Holy Spirit. Not everybody, not every account of people coming to faith in Christ uh, has this. Uh, The Ethiopian eunuch, there's no mention of him. Uh, um, He was being baptized, but no mention of him needing to be uh, confirmed. And it was Philip who preached to the Samaritans. And right after that, Philip preached to the Ethiopian. So we have these uh, accounts throughout Scripture, thousands of people being added to the church, but we have these four events where it speaks of tongues. Let me stop here before we move on. Any questions? Yes. So uh, both were miracles, right? They're both coming. Tower of Babel, you have a confusion of languages. Uh, here you have uh, the supernatural ability to be able to communicate through other languages. And yet it seems like it was not something that... Uh, uh, was universal in every conversion. It was something that was uh, a sign gift, and so it's, it wasn't permanent. We know that because we saw just a few couple of weeks ago, we saw in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, you can turn back to 1 Corinthians, uh, we saw in 1 Corinthians 13, 8, love never fails, but if there are a gift of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, they will be done away. We talked about those verbs. We talked about the fact that tongues will cease And the verb that's used there is in the middle voice, which means on their own, they will stop. And they did stop. They stopped around sometime uh, in the first century. Historians, you know, we don't have any record of it even, and we talked about this when we were just a few weeks ago, we don't have any record of, of tongues even as the later epistles were written. It's only the early foundational time. And I would propose to you that there's, uh, you know, I, I don't see any biblical evidence for tongues being necessary or continuing on even before the canon was completed um, because it was really a confirming group, a confirming gift. It would have brought great assurance and comfort to the church early on to know that, hey, we can all worship together because we all have the same spirit. We've all heard the same message. We have the same confession. We are one body. All right? Any other questions? Yes. 
Ya. So that's a great question. The question is, because we're going to get to that in Corinth, but um, because in Corinth, they all spoke Greek. And that's evident from the context that we're looking at today. The Samaritans, remember, were from all different nations. It was a, it was a, it was a multicultural, it was a melting pot. It was America. There he is. Um, it was this place. You know, and so uh, there would have been there, quite a number of languages in that region that would have been spoken much more than in Judea. All right? And remember, in Judea, it was on the day of Pentecost when all those people from foreign places were coming. And then you have uh, the, um, with the Gentiles, they were also um, speaking, um, and and it was the Jews who could understand them. We're not told that they were speaking fluent Hebrew. It may have been. The Jews would have spoken Hebrew. Proselytes would have spoken, proselytes and those Jews from other places like Ephesus would have spoken Greek. And in, in Israel, in, 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 um, in and around Jerusalem, uh, in the first century, there were two types of synagogues. There were synagogues that taught in Hebrew, and, and there were synagogues that taught in Greek, because Greek was the trade language. And so even in, even in Judea, you had these different languages being spoken, especially when people came and visited. And if you grew up in a foreign land and were Jewish, if it came back, you could actually worship. Um, in, in, um, in that language. And you remember that there was a problem, uh, I think, in Acts chapter 6 with the widows who were being overlooked, because, and they were the Hellenistic widows, the ones who would have grown up speaking um, uh, Greek. And in fact, there was actually a difference in Judaism in the way they doled out money. If you were from there, they would give you money if you were a widow. If you were not from there and you were a Hellenistic, they would give you a daily dole where you come daily and receive food because you were probably a traveler. You probably weren't from there. So that might have kept your problem early on. Yes? So, uh, receiving the Holy Spirit, how can we celebrate Okay, so now that, that's a good question, and this is important for us to, to, to get our minds around it. And, and so receiving the Holy Spirit sounds like another way of saying conversion. I would say that, first of all, we need to differentiate between the filling of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and the um, uh, uh, indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Um, and the filling of the Holy Spirit, Pastor John covered all that last week, right? So we've got that. Ephesians 5.18, be not drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. It's a command. It's imperative. It means to be controlled by the Spirit, to do what the Spirit of God would have you do. You're not doing what you naturally would do. You're doing what God's Spirit would have you do. It's what would the Spirit do. It should be an armband or something like that. So um, but that's being filled with the Holy Spirit. We're not always filled. Even believers are not always, we don't always do what the Lord would want us to do, what the Spirit of God would want us to do. And that's why we're commanded to do that in Ephesians 5. Um, being indwelled by the Holy Spirit is something that every believer has. And even by the time Paul wrote to the Romans in Romans 8, 9, it says, However, you are not in the flesh, if God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So you are not a Christian if you don't have the Spirit of Christ. That's what Paul writes by the time that Romans was written. Think about this. 1 Corinthians 12 talks about the baptism of the Spirit. The word baptizo, baptism is an unfortunate word in our Bibles because it means to immerse. But instead of translating it, when we had our English translations, they made a transliteration where they take a Greek word and they make an English word out of it. 
which leaves it, it sounds like, well, what is baptism? Baptism just means to immerse. We translate the other words, but we don't translate that word. And it means to immerse. And so when you're baptized in the spirit, you're baptized into the body of Christ. You become a member of the body of Christ. And that's clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 11. Sorry, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13, which says this. For by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. So what I would say is this. During that foundational time of the church, initially for the the Jewish disciples in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, they believed and were genuine believers, and then they received the spirit. It was delayed, uh, and they were indwelled by the spirit. And they were filled with the Spirit while they were speaking in tongues. Uh, and for the um, same thing for the Samaritans and the Gentiles, those first groups, and even the ones with John, John, John the Baptist's disciples up in Ephesus. But every other believer, even by the time Corinthians was written, by the time um, we, we, we have um, Romans being written, if you are a believer simultaneously to you being regenerated, you are indwelled with the Spirit and you are baptized into the body of Christ. There's no such thing as a Christian who does not have And I've told you this story, but I remember when I was in college and I was sitting at a, at a table in the cafe, in the cafe and, and a, a girl was talking about this new guy that she was interested in and, and he was, she was like, she was like, yeah, and then some other kid said, well, is he a believer? You know, oh, yeah, not only is he a believer, he has the Spirit. And my ears went up, and I'm like, what? You know, how could you be a believer? And Romans verse 9 said, you are not in the flesh, in the, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So Jude has a similar teaching in the book of Jude, but, the, but, but the, the, scripture, the scripture teaches that if you're a believer, you have the spirit. And so what I would propose to you based on what we've just read and discussed today is that the normal way, the normal thing that happens when somebody comes to faith in Christ is immediately they are baptized into the body of Christ. That is, they're immersed in the body of Christ, according to 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen, And they are immediately, at the same time, simultaneously, they are indwelled by God's Spirit. But during that first church, there was a delay between belief and Holy Spirit for cert- Holy Spirit indwelling for certain groups of people because uh, there was a purpose for it, and that was to bring more unity in the church. Can we move on? Are we ready? 1 Corinthians 14, let's go. All right, we got 10 minutes. Whew. Man. Yes, question. I'm not talking water baptism. There are dry verses and wet verses when it comes to baptism. Uh, because the word means to be immersed. And we could say, man, he's really immersed in his work. And there's no water there unless he really, you know, knocked over a pitcher of water. And even then it's pouring. It's not immersion, right? Because we, uh, but anyways, that's a different story. But the, the, the whole idea here is that, is that uh, we use that word sometimes with water and sometimes in other contexts. 
The word in Scripture is used sometimes to speak about being immersed into the body of Christ, um, being placed in the body of Christ. You're now a member. That's what 1 Corinthians 12 is all about. And this, it's used, second, secondly, um, to speak about water baptism. And so um, it, it becomes, becomes apparent. And if you want to read more, I mean, and we can go back in the book of Acts and um, in Acts chapter 8, just after the, the Samaritans believers were converted, you have um, Philip going down, and there's the Ethiopian eunuch, and he believes the word of God is explained to him from Isaiah while they're in the chariot, and he says, um, is there any reason why this guy shouldn't be baptized? No mention of, oh, hey, maybe we need to get some apostles here and get him filled with the Holy Spirit first. So they baptize him with water. And baptism was that, is that with water is that outward uh, identification that you have been immersed into the body of Christ, that you are a genuine believer, that you've renounced everything, that you are cleansed, that you are with God, that you are with God following God, even his son Christ, who is God, who came down and paid his life as a ransom for you. It's that identification with Christ. And if you have not been baptized yet with water, but you have believed and you are a true child of God and you have his spirit, then you should be baptized with water. And if you have not yet believed and you've just been for your own goodness and you have not really repented and trusted in Christ's righteousness, then you need to repent and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Be baptized into the body of Christ to be indwelled with the Spirit. It will all happen when you genuinely believe. Um, I, I think this is, this is so important to understand what this is about because when we get into chapter 14, it gets confusing as you start to read. One of the reasons it's, it's, it's one of the reasons it gets confusing is because we don't have a good understanding of what the biblical gift of tongues actually looked like. Another reasons, reason why it gets confusing is, tell me about the church of Corinth. Tell me about them. What do you know? They were a mess. Thank you. Why were they a mess? Sexual immorality. Is that normal behavior that should be happening in the church, that, that you have a guy who's you know, having a, a relationship with his dad's wife? And that the, the, the church is very accepting of that. Hey, welcome everyone. Right? Uh, what else was going on? Yeah. So uh, it's interesting, and we, and we can talk more about this, but the, they, would, they integrated a lot of pagan practices into their worship. And uh, this idea of speaking an ecstatic nonsense language was prevalent centuries before the early church established. Here's the thing. The early church, the church in Corinth, one thing we see about it is like, we don't read this book and say, oh, we want to be just like them. Why? Because just about every chapter, we find things in the church that they abused and misused. And when we come to Acts chapter 14, we're reading about tongues and we're reading about it 
in a church that abused and misused things. And so when we have tongues in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, and, and Paul writes to that, um, we see that there's this idea that not only we've got to have a proper understanding of what it should have been, but we've got to realize this is a church that often counterfeited gifts and abused them. And let me just get to my people. We'll just look at verse 1 today. In 1 Corinthians 14, verse 1, we're going to look at two key principles, or verse 1, we'll just look at one key principle about spiritual gifts that should motivate us really to, to pursue the right gifts. And the first one is that a desire for spiritual gifts can be good. This is a key principle that Paul is trying to get across here. He says in verse 1, pursue love, yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. He actually has two commands here. One is to pursue and one is to desire. They're similar words. The word pursue is actually a stronger word. And it's this idea of almost to chase after someone like you're going to persecute them. Um, It's actually used in Philippians 3 verse 14. I press on toward the goal for the prize for the upward call of God in Christ. It's the idea that you're running after this. But there's also desire here. And he adds the word earnestly. That is with intensity. Desire also. And there's an adversative in between them. That is a contrasting conjunction. Conjunction, junction, what's your function? We have not a coordinating conjunction. It's not the word and here. Some translations have the word and here, but this is an um, adversative. It shows but, all right? So read it. Look how it could be different. Uh, verse 14, pursue spiritual gifts. That's not what it's really saying. The emphasis here is pursue love, yet or but desire earnestly spiritual gifts. What he's saying here is, I I think what Paul is trying to do is all through chapter 12, he has been talking about unity and the right use of spiritual gifts. He gets into chapter 13 and he says, but let me show you the more excellent way, right? Chapter 12, verse 31. And then he has this discourse on love. And he says, if you're going to focus on something, focus on love. He comes back in chapter 14 and he says, all right, now I've really hit love hard, but I want you to know we also should pursue spiritual gifts. I'm bringing chapter 12 and chapter 13 together in chapter 14. And that's why he says um, to pursue, pursue love, yet desire spiritual gifts at the same time, and especially that you may prophesy. And what we're going to see throughout this chapter is that prophecy, which is speaking forth the word of God in intelligible words, is much better than tongues, even if tongues were practiced as they should have been. Tongues are not greater. Tongues are not... One of the real stumbling blocks for people when they come to chapter 14 is that he's saying, but wait a minute, why is he saying desire gifts and why is he including tongues in there because i thought that we had a variety of gifts i thought that we shouldn't all desire the same gifts and now he's saying everybody should desire prophecy what? i'm not gonna leave you hanging i feel like leaving we'll come back next week um there's something going on here and that is that it's a second person plural verb y'all y'all desire we don't have that in English because we don't, we don't differentiate between first person, uh, sorry, second person singular and second person plural. We don't, uh, you singular and you plural. The only people that do that are people in Tennessee. And they say, y'all, 
right? Texas. Yeah, there you go. Thank you. Um, so um, unless you left all your exes in Texas, that's why you hang your hat in Tennessee. Sorry. Um, uh, um, <laughs> whoa. So when you're, but just, just think about this. Saying, he's saying you all should desire prophecy. He's saying you as a church because Prophecy is the preaching of the word. It is the proclamation of the word. It is speaking forth the word of God, and that benefits the whole church. In no way is he saying everybody should have the same gift. He's just spent a whole chapter in chapter 12 saying we all shouldn't be an eye. We all shouldn't be an ear. So now he's saying, but as we desire that we have the teaching of God's word because that will benefit us all. It's better than tongues because tongues doesn't benefit everybody. The next question that comes up, which we will get to next week, Lord willing, is, well, is self-edification okay? I mean, if, can I build myself up? Wouldn't it be good? To, because he talks about build, tongues just builds up yourself. Well, and there are people who say, oh, well, I think it's okay to, to help other people. Let's pray. Thank you, Father. It's time together. We do thank you for helping us to get a, uh, a better understanding of what the first century gift of tongues was like. We're thankful for that gift, a gift that was given to help your church, and we benefit from that. We benefit from the fact that we are here together. We want no one to be excluded. We want all repentant sinners to be able to worship together, whether they're Jew or Gentile, whether they're male or female, whether they're rich or poor. Lord, we come to you humbly serving you, giving our lives to you, and we have been put in one body. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to love one another and prize love, which is forever, but at the same time use gifts and desire to use those gifts in a way that glorifies you. We're thankful for this. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.